been in any type of relationship for, for any period of time, you have had the, the DTR. So the talk where it's time to define the relationship. If you're in a relationship and you haven't had the talk, you know that that time is coming. At some point, even if it's a awkward, even if it's a little weird, you need to sit down and you need to discuss with one another. It's like, where is this relationship heading? Which direction are we going in? What are our plans for the future? And then you kind of assess, like, is this the relationship that you want to, to be in? I remember one time when Tiffany and I had the, the DTR. Unfortunately, I did not know that's what we were getting ready to have. And so we were just riding in the car together and we, I had just started university and it's August and she just asked me, hey, where do you see yourself in next summer? And me being the very astute person that I am, I answered very honestly and I said, I don't know, I haven't thought about next summer. That was the wrong answer because she had very much thought about last next summer. And she had some plans and she had some dreams that included us being married uh, that summer. And so we sat down and we had to have the, the define the relationship talk. It wasn't that we didn't want to get married. We had been dating for three years at that point. Like we knew that that was heading where the direction was, but this was one of the first times we sat down to find the relationship and had like the, the actual timeline and the timetable started to be set up. So we've all kind of had these conversations. If you haven't, you're going to at some point. And what we see this morning in a really powerful way, this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is having the DTR with every single one of us. It's time, Jesus says, to define the relationship. It's time for us to see where things are heading, to see where we're going to be. And what we find as we walk through Mark's gospel, like this is kind of the moment where Jesus' popularity, it's at an all-time high. It's going to start to dwindle. Because when Jesus defines the relationship, it's, it's tough. He defines the relationship in a way that really is kind of hard for us. And Jesus says, like, here's some steps, here's some things that you need to do. If you are going to be in relationship with me, here's what's going to have to happen. And he encourages us, he challenges us not to take these things lightly, to truly consider these things. So what we're going to do today is we are actually, we're just going to walk through the scripture, sometimes verse by verse, sometimes word by word, sometimes phrase by phrase, because what Jesus is saying here is KJ was reading that passage. There's so much here, so much significance for us to be as the follower, an apprentice, a disciple of Jesus, that we just got to walk slowly through this. And one of the reasons I want to do this is because if we look back at verse 32, Jesus makes this statement, and I want us to catch this. This is really setting up the conversation that Jesus is getting ready to walk into with us. Verse 32, Mark writes this. He says, Jesus talked about this openly with his disciples. And that phrase, that word openly is actually really important because... A lot of times when Jesus talks, like he speaks kind of metaphorically, right? Like Jesus will talk about the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed and he uses parables and metaphors. And sometimes Jesus is kind of hard to understand. Like sometimes when we read through some of these parables, like I don't know necessarily what you're getting at, Jesus. And, and sometimes the disciples even ask Jesus to, hey, can you explain that? And Jesus, he refuses. Sometimes it says in the text that, that they were, the meaning was hidden from them. Yet here's Jesus speaking openly, frankly, simply about two things in particular. One, about him being the suffering Messiah. Jesus speaks openly. He speaks frankly about that. Then 
Jesus speaks frankly. He speaks openly about the cost of following him. And this is significant as Jesus never leaves the cost of discipleship in question. This is what Jesus is very open about. He never leaves the cost of discipleship in question. He is very open about what it is going to cost us if we are going to be a follower of Jesus. And sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder how Jesus may feel when he sees people as as followers of him not being clear on the cost of discipleship. Sometimes I wonder how, wonder how Jesus feels if we try to make Jesus a little bit more palatable so that more people will want to come and walk with him and be in relationship with him because Jesus never leaves in the question that it is going to be costly to be a follower of his. He doesn't leave that into question for us. So as we walk through this text, we're going to do so openly. We're going to do it frankly. We're going to do it simply the way that Jesus is doing this for us. So let's dive in. Verse 34, the very beginning, Jesus goes on to say, This is what happens. He says, Then, calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower. So we're going to stop there for just a second. And we're going to deal with the the idea of a follower in just a few minutes. But I hope to kind of prime our conversation, to prime the pump this morning. What Jesus would have been viewed as was as a rabbi. So what would have happened in that day is a rabbi would have been a, a spiritual leader who would have invited people to come and, and sit at his feet. And so what would have happened was like when Jesus was this rabbi, like it would have been a great honor to be invited to be in the follower of a rabbi. So this idea of being a follower would be like an apprentice. You would go and you would sit at the feet of this rabbi, of this teacher, and, and you would do what they did. You would walk as they walked. You would live as they live. And this is what Jesus was. Jesus was a rabbi. And so it was this great invitation. When Jesus said, follow me, it would have been a very good thing. People would have left their family, left them to go follow after a rabbi. And usually as we read through this time period, when we talk about, when we see people, rabbis calling pupils, calling apprentices, calling people to them, it's usually the elite of the elite. Like, as you think about this, think about the Pharisees. These are the type of people that we usually think about who were called to be with a rabbi, to sit with them. Think Think about Paul in the New Testament, somebody who is absolutely brilliant, somebody who has all these credentials. Like, that's what we think about when we think about somebody sitting at the feet of a rabbi. Like, you think about this idea of a Pharisee family. Here's what would have happened in a, in a Pharisaic family. At two years old, the boy, what the family would have done to their, to their son is they would have taken the scroll of the law. They would have taken God's word. They would have dropped honey on it. They would have handed it to their two-year-old son to lick the honey off of the scroll so that he could truly experience Psalm 119, that the words of the Lord are sweeter than honey. By the age of four, a son in a a Pharisaic family, he would have started memorizing the book of Leviticus. By the age of 10, he would have had the first five books of the Bible memorized. By the time he was a teenager, he would have had the entire Old Testament memorized. And so this is what we think. This is the idea usually of someone who comes to the feet of a rabbi, someone who ticks a lot of boxes, someone who's completely like impressive. But then there's Jesus who shows up and he extends his invitation beyond the 12 that he has followers of his disciples. Jesus extends the invitation to to all of us. This is what he says. He says, the crowd joins the disciples, if any of you. 
What does any of you mean? All of us? Any of us? Here's the reality. Jesus wants you. Jesus wants you. And that may be a struggle to believe. The reality is he wants you to be an apprentice of his. He wants you to be in relationship with him. He wants you to come and be with him. He loves you and he wants you to join him. We are all invited into this relationship. There's no more superiority. It doesn't matter the noble family birth that you were. It doesn't matter your social status. Jesus wants you. And he's invited all of us to, to be with him. And like, if we are honest, as we start thinking through this, this passage, like, isn't this what we all want? Really? At the end of the day, don't we want a life that matters? Don't we want to have significance? Don't we want our life to count for something? Do we want to be classified? Do we want to be part of this kingdom that Jesus is, is inviting us into? So you, you might feel insignificant. You might feel unimportant. You might feel unimpressive. You might feel like you don't have a lot to offer, but that is not the way that Jesus sees you. Jesus gives you this opportunity. He says, follow me. Be with me. And as we're invited to follow him, Jesus says, here's one of the things you have to do. Is he, uh, he says, take up your cross. Now, we'll be real honest. Well, if we stop right there, like, let's be honest with Jesus. Like, giving this invitation is a little, like, suspect, right? Like, Jesus says, take up your cross. Now, if Jesus would have had a marketing team around him, I'm pretty sure they would have said, Jesus, if we're going to pick something to brand you, let's not choose the cross. Like, let's choose something that's a little bit more palatable, right? Let's choose the, the shepherd's staff. Like, a, that's a picture of protection and power. Like, let's, let's choose that. Or, like, if you were going to make this logo, Johanna's been working on logos for, like, our co-working space. And, like, and so if, 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 she, if Jesus was going to consult Johanna, like, how should we brand ourselves? Like, maybe G they'd say, hey, use the dove, right? The picture of, of this beautiful, the picture of the Holy Spirit. And even we can tie that into your baptism. The dove comes down, and it's awesome. And, but, but don't pick the cross, but Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be a follower, you have to take up your cross. The first phrase that we see there is this phrase, take up. Now, I'm not really good at English, but I do know that's a verb, meaning it's action. It's something that we have to do. It's impossible for us to take up our cross and not actually do something about it. So what Jesus is calling us to, he's calling us into action. He's calling us into do some things. He's not just saying, hey, sit back and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. No, he's saying we are going to commit, we're going to submit to him, not only in word, but also in deed. To be a follower of Jesus isn't just to identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. It is to take up, to, to deny yourself, your own desires, re renounce yourself, and just truly follow after him. And so Jesus says, take up your cross. And I think there's been this, this shift that's begun to happen in the 21st century. It's like, because we use this phrase, or I hear this phrase used all the time. You know, this is our cross to bear. Right? This is an idiom that people use, and, and like we use it in the most absurd ways. Like People say, oh man, my, my air conditioner in my car won't work today, and it's hot. 
This is my cross to bear. Or I went to the grocery shop and they didn't have my favorite kind of ice cream, but you know, this is my cross to bear. Or like I went to the, went to the, got petrol and I filled my car up. I went to get coffee and the coffee was cold, but this is my cross to bear. And like, this is the way that this is, this is what have been used. This is the way we use this term now. We shouldn't, but that's the way it's used. But when Jesus says, take up your cross, when the original readers of Mark's gospel would have read this, they would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. And it wasn't about cold coffee. And it wasn't about the shop not having their ice cream that we wanted. Here's what I find fascinating is this is actually the very first reference to the cross in Mark's gospel. The next reference to the cross is going to be in Mark chapter 15 when Jesus is about to be executed. And so Mark is setting this up really significant for us. He said the first time he mentions the cross when he talks about the cost of discipleship. The next time he mentions the cross, he talks about the death that Jesus is about to die. And this is really important for us. Jesus isn't speaking hyperbole. Jesus isn't speaking about some, some metaphorical cross. Jesus isn't just saying to his disciples, hey, pick up this hypothetical cross that maybe one day you might care. No, Jesus is he's being literal here. And the first century readers of Mark's gospel, man, they would have understood. They would have understood. They would have thought. They would have pictured the goriness of the cross. They would have thought of the pain of the cross. They would have known that Rome took this Persian uh, exercise and, and perfected it. They would have known that Rome used crucifixion as to be the most painful way of execution possible. They would, have, they would have known as they walked into the city, out of all the main intersections where they would have seen crosses up on the side of the road to warn people, this is what happens when you cross Rome. This is what happens when you, you misbehave. This is what happens when you do these sorts of things. Like the followers of, of Jesus, they would have understood. Mark's gospel writers would have known what it meant to pick up a patabulum and to walk to your death. They would have understood. They would have known this. And so when Jesus tells us to pick up our cross, it's not just to pick up our inconveniences. It's not just to pick these things up. It's to pick up this, to be willing to pick up a cross, to walk to our death for the sake of Jesus. This is what he's calling us to. And that day, a cross, to carry a cross meant that you were a dead man walking or woman. That's what you were. And so when Jesus says, pick up this cross, this isn't just some metaphorical language. This is, this is literal. This is us saying, I'm going to be willing to walk with Jesus even to the point of death. I'm going to be willing to walk for Jesus and live for him even to the point of death on a cross. Here's the reality is there is no way to follow Jesus without taking up your cross. You can't follow Jesus without a willingness to be willing to, to pick up our cross to walk in the direction with him, to walk with him. There's no way around it. There's no wiggle room here. Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, this is how you do it. And there's no wonder that Jesus' popularity starts to dwindle here. Because this is hard. Because who, who wants to do this? He says, take up your cross. And the next phrase is, and follow me. Follow me. And so as we talk about this idea of following, I think, picture, picture a child for a second. When you tell your child to follow you, what do you intend for them to do? Or if you tell anybody to follow you, what do you intend them to do? 
follow you. Like when I tell my girls, hey, follow me, I don't intend for them to go like try to climb the wall or like lollygag, that's what they do, but that's not what I intend for them to do. When I say follow me, my intention is, hey, actually like walk with me, follow me, walk beside me, walk on my heels, walk by my side, actually follow me. This is what Jesus is getting at. When he says, follow me, he's meaning, follow me. Walk with me. Go in the direction that I go. Walk in step with me. Follow in my footsteps. Follow in my direction. Man, as we read this statement, I think the question that it begs us to ask is, is who are we following? Who are we following? Who are we modeling our lives, our dreams, our hopes, our passions, our love, our looks, our words, who are we modeling them after? Is it Jesus? Or is it some social media influencer? Who are we modeling our lives after? Who are we following? Are we following the Jesus of the scripture? Are we following just some other version that we've deluded of him? Like, who are we actually following? And as we read through the Gospels, Jesus offers three different invitations. We can sum up all of Jesus' invitation in these, these three invitations. One is, is, come to me. And then there's this one, follow me. And then there's, abide in me. And what I want to make sure that we understand is when Jesus invites us to follow him, it is an invitation of grace. Because... This is what Jesus has done. He's, Jesus has come. Jesus has taken the initiative. He has stepped into our world so that we could be in relationship with him. This is an invitation of grace. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, I will give you rest. That is an invitation of grace. When he says that you can abide in me, that is an invitation of grace. And so this following me, this is a great invitation. So when Jesus says, come to me, when he says, follow me, when he says, abide in me, the me that Jesus wants us to focus on is not me. The me that Jesus wants me to focus on is him. And that is the me that we are to focus on. And it starts with a willingness to do what Jesus says next. He says, if you, if you must, he's to be my follower, you must give up your own way. And then verse 34 says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. You will lose it. Don't miss that first phrase, you must. It's not optional. There's no wiggle room around this. There's no way to be like, well, you know, I can probably live for you and live my own way. No, Jesus is saying, you must give up your own way. We must do this. And when I, when I think about this idea, like I, I, I have two kids and, and I hear kids do this. My kids don't, but I'm sure other kids do. But like one of them will have a toy and then the other one will come along and they want a toy and they go for it. And then at some point, like other kids get a little greedy and they just start collecting all the toys in their arms. I don't know. I've heard other kids do this. I don't know. Uh, but, like, and so they, but here they are. They're standing with this arm full of toys because they've wanted to be greedy. They don't want their sibling or their friend to play with these toys. And here they are, and no one can play with anything. Even the person with the arm full of toys, like they can't play with that, right? Because here they are. They're just like stumbling over all the toys that they have. If they want to actually play, they have to let go. And so they just stand there with an arm full of toy. Everyone around them is upset. 
And this is what I picture. It's like, here we are in our lives. We've got all these things that we're holding on to. And Jesus is saying, let go. And we're like, well, um, I really would like to do things my way this way, Jesus. And so we're sitting there trying to hold all the toys and grab for Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, you want to be my follower? You got to let it go. You got to let go of your own life. You got to let go of what you want to do. You got to let go of these only desires that that are yours and you got to cling to me because there's no way that we can hold on to our own life and cling to the life that Jesus is offering us. We can't do both. We can't live a life that says, okay, Jesus, on Sunday morning, I am yours. On Wednesday night, I am yours, but don't talk to me about the weekend. That's mine. It doesn't work. We can't say to Jesus, hey, you can have my morning, you can have my, at my evening, but that nine to five that I'm at work, that's my time. That doesn't work. We can't cling to our own life and still hold on to the life that Jesus has. We've got to, we've got to let go. We must give up our own way. Maybe for some of us, that's, that's giving up our own way is, you know, this own method that we've, we've started figuring out to follow Jesus. Maybe we look through the scriptures and you're like, okay, I love what Jesus says about salvation. I love what he has to say about getting into heaven. I'm going to hold on to that, but don't, don't talk to me about my relationships. I'll keep those, but you, I'll, I'll hold on to this. It doesn't work. Maybe we say, okay, God, I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to do all these things. Yeah, sure, it might be a little unethical, but don't worry, God. I'm going to give you 10% of it, so don't, that's going to make everything okay. And Jesus is saying, no, you got to let go of that. You can't hold on to that. You must let go. And this phrase, you must give up, in the Greek is actually one word. And as you look at it quite literally, it's a fascinating word for us. It's this idea to give up our own life is to claim no knowledge or relationship to. Another way it could be understood is to disregard. Or my favorite is disavow. So it's this idea of like, I am giving this up and I am claiming no relation to that ever again. I'm walking away from it once and for all. When Diedrich Bonhoeffer talks about the cost of discipleship, one of the phrases that he uses, my favorite quote, one of my favorite quotes from him, it's, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is what Jesus is doing. Hey, you want to follow me? Come and die. And so the idea here is we let go of our own life, And we don't look back. We let go of the things that we were living outside of Christ. We let go of those and we cling to him and we don't turn back to them. We forget that they they existed. They're dead and they're gone. Really good example for this in our scriptures is is from Matthew, the, the disciple of Jesus. So Matthew or Levi, whichever name you want to use, feel free. Matthew, before Jesus calls him, he is a tax collector. Meaning he would have sold his soul to the Roman government. He would have made his money by cheating his own people. But Matthew would have had a a pretty cushy job. Like there would have been tons of people who wanted Matthew's job. And so when Jesus says to Matthew, follow me, when when Matthew walks out of his tax collector's booth, when he closes the doors on his tax collector's booth, it's, it's for the final time. There's no going back to that. It's, it's done. It's finished. There are hundreds of people who want his job that are going to be ready to replace him. So when Matthew answers this invitation to go and follow me, he is saying to Jesus, okay, that part of my life is done. Now, the only thing that matters is my life with you. 
And this is what Jesus is calling us to, is that life that we live before we were followers of Jesus, the way that we live, that we're apart from God, we're leaving that behind, and we are following after Jesus, never to return to that again. So we renounce our claim to ourselves, to our own dreams and our own desires and our own ambitions, and rather, we put them in line with Jesus. And we say, Jesus, I'm going to be a slave of yours. And what's the only thing a slave can do? What's, what's the only thing a slave can do? Obey his master. Obey his master. That's what we're going to do. Say, okay, Jesus, I'm your slave. Whatever you say from here on out, I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust myself to you. And here's one of the amazing things that, that we see. One of the, the things that we see throughout Scripture is this idea of sanctification, this idea of becoming like Jesus. Or in German, I just found this out this week, um, holying. It's this idea of becoming more holy. It's a fantastic word. Here's the cool thing. As we begin to continue to follow Jesus, as we continue to walk with him, as we continue to follow after him, our hearts begin to change. Our desires start to be altered. What we actually want starts to be that of what God and what Jesus wants. And we just read in Psalm 154, it talks about God giving us our desires because we have aligned our life with him and our desires start to be his desires. And as we start to be, continue to follow him, this is what we look like. We start to look more like him. But the reality is we have a world that is trying to do the opposite. We have a world that's trying to do the opposite of make our lives look more like him. I mean, we live in a world that's all about self. It revolves around self. Protect yourself. Promote yourself. Preserve yourself. Entertain yourself. Comfort yourself. Take care of yourself. And here's Jesus saying, deny yourself. Slay yourself. Give up yourself. In our world, it just seems to be so opposite of what Jesus wants from us. Jesus goes on to say, he says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. And I want us to think for just a second. Actually think very critically about this. Is there anything in your life apart that's, that's counter to the way of Jesus? Is there anything in your life that goes against the way of Jesus that is actually better than what Jesus can offer you? Is there anything in your life that's living outside of the, the call of following Jesus that is actually better than what Jesus can offer you? Is that job, that relationship, that drug, that drink, that, that mark of financial security, is that actually better than what Jesus can offer you? Is that worth losing your life over and four, like why? Why would we cling to these things? Why would we hold on to our own life when real life is available? When there's something so much more available to us and for us? Back when I was in university, uh, I had a, a moment where me and a, some of my buddies, we went, out to, we went out to eat for supper. And we went to this place called IHOP, which is International House of Pancakes, 
now I'm thinking about it, I don't really know why it's called IHOP. I've never actually seen an IHOP like anywhere else internationally that I've been, so it should just be called Hop House of Pancakes, but like whatever, that doesn't really matter to the story, just weird. But anyway, so there's this thing, like we were there, we were eating and everything was going fine and we got ready to leave. And we're outside chatting, it's late at this point, we've been there a while, and the guy that I rode with, he and some of my mates get in the car and they get ready to start driving off. And I'm like, okay, that's annoying. I'm, I'm riding with you. And I thought, you know, it would be really funny if like I just jumped on the top of the car. You know, that'll, that'll be fine. And I wish I could blame like alcohol or something like that. No, I just had like an underdeveloped prefrontal cortex. Like I was, I was stupid. All right. But anyway, I go and I jump on this car and I'm like, okay, he's going to stop. He doesn't stop. Like, I'm like, hey, dude, slow down. And the more that I shouted slow down, the more that he sped up. The more that my friends in the car were shouting slow down, the more that he spread up. So thankfully, the windows were open. And so here I am on top of the car, grappling the windows as tight as I can. My buddies tell me after he finally stops, like I made it out alive, but he finally comes to a stop that he got to 40 miles an hour, about 65 kilometers an hour. Just flying down a road and here I am holding onto the top of the car. I had bruises on the inside of my hands for weeks where I was clinging so tightly to this car because I did not want to die. And I wonder, how often is that us? We just cling so tightly. We white knuckle these things so tightly. When Jesus is saying, hey, let it go and truly follow after me. How often do we cling to desperate to these things that we know are apart from God, these things that we, should, we know aren't what he wants from us? And Jesus is saying, let go of those things so I can give you real and meaningful life. We hold on tightly to these things that in the end of the day are meaningless. They're worthless. Solomon would say a chasing after the wind. How often is this us? So Jesus goes on to say, but if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. So what Jesus wants us to know is that he is worth it. Jesus wants us to know he is worth it. And a couple of weeks ago, I, I got on Twitter and I just started searching the hashtag worth it to kind of see what people were saying was worth it. And here's a few that I found. There was a girl called Zena, and she decided that she would post a video of having her entire arm waxed for our viewing pleasure. And so she goes, and it's this five-second video of her, all the hair on her arm being waxed, and there's tears and there's screams accompanying it. But she says, hashtag worth it. Then there's Phil. There's Phil who, he says this, he says, I got distracted by a cute dog as I, as I was walking and ran straight into a tree. Hashtag worth it. Then there's Fred. Fred says, I just dipped fried cheese into more cheese. I'm pretty sure my heart is going to stop beating when I go to bed tonight. Hashtag worth it. Probably not. But you know, this is my favorite. This was a girl called Kathy. And Kathy said, I just ate 40 ginger biscuits. My stomach is going to be so angry later, but they were so good. Hashtag worth it. And here's what Jesus is saying in a real way. Better than eating 40 ginger biscuits. Man, that he's worth it. He is worth it. And I don't want to sugarcoat this for us this morning. There may be some things that we have to walk away from that are going to be really painful. 
There may be some things, some hopes, some dreams, some passions in our own lives that we are going to have to walk away from that are going to leave us grieving. It's going to leave us mourning. Like it may be really hard and really painful to walk away from that relationship that you know God doesn't want for you. It might be really hard to walk away from that that job opportunity or that promotion that you know isn't what God wants. It might be really hard for that. Maybe there was these dreams and these plans of like how your, your 30s or your 20s or whatever age you want to say, like maybe you had these dreams and you, your plans of like, okay, during this time of my life, I was going to dedicate it to traveling. I'm going to dedicate this time of my life to, you know, working on me. And it might be really difficult to give that up. It might be painful to walk away from that. Man, maybe you had a date that you thought, by this day, I'm going to be married, or by this time, we're going to have kids, or by this time, I'm going to retire. And you look at your life, and you're like, that is a dream that I had. And Jesus is saying, hey, follow me. And he's saying, like, it, it may be hard. It might be painful to give some of these things up. Guys, what I believe in everything in me is that Jesus is worth it. The only way to truly live is to lose your life. It's one of the paradoxes of Scripture. The only way for us to truly have real life is to give up our lives. Not necessarily, not literally die, maybe, but not always. But it's this willingness to to give up our own way and to walk with Jesus. And when we do that, we can truly live. We can truly live like we never have before. We can live in the here and the now. We can truly have life. What I want us to notice in our text is what we are giving up for. Jesus says, if you give up your life for what? My sake and for the sake of the the good news. This is what we're giving up for. Like, we're not just giving up for for giving up sake. We're not just giving up for no reason. We're not sitting here thinking back to our childhood and be like, well, my parents never let me give up on anything, even though I wanted to give up on that. They made me keep doing this, so I'm going to give up, you know, as a rebellious. Like, that's not what we're giving up for. No, we're giving up for the sake of the gospel. We're giving up for the sake of Jesus. And so as we read this idea of good news, we're giving up for the good news. I think sometimes there can be this misconception of what the good news or a misconception about what the gospel actually is. As I think sometimes we often, the only thing we think about when we think about salvation, we think about the good news of the gospel is the only thing we think is I get to go to heaven when I die. And that's good news, no doubt. Excellent news. But there's so much more to the good news of Jesus. There's so much more to, to that. There's, we get to live heaven on earth. We can experience that. You know what we get to have the good news on when we have this good news? Is we get to have freedom. Free from our sin. Free from our guilt. Free from regret. We get to live. We get to experience that. This good news is Shalom. It's, it's peace with God and with other people. It's peace with the world. It's peace with myself. What is offered here is, is great joy in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of everything going terribly around us. When Jesus, we have this good news, we can find this great joy 
To give up for the sake of Jesus, to give up for the sake of the good news, is to live the life that we were always created to live. It's to return back to the garden when Adam and Eve live in perfect harmony with God. This is the good news. This is what we're giving up for, is to actually live the life that every single one of us were created for. That's why I believe that in Jesus, we find someone worth losing everything for. And Jesus, man, he, he's that good. He's that good. He is worth giving up everything for. He is worth losing everything for. Jesus continues in verse 36 and 37. He says, What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but our South Africa's favorite son, Elon Musk, he has a Guinness Book world record. I don't know if you guys know this. Um, and for everything that he has accomplished, it's probably not a Guinness Book world record that you would expect him to have. Not really one that we want. Elon Musk has a Guinness world record of losing the most money ever. So in a course of 14 months from November 2021 to January 2023, Elon Musk lost a whopping, you ready for this? 180 to 200 billion dollars. That's, that's a lot. Just to kind of help us understand how much a million or a billion is compared to a million, one million seconds is 12 days. One billion seconds is 31 years. Talk about losing a lot of money, right? And so he made Tesla kind of, the stocks from Tesla went down. He bought Twitter. That's been a nightmare. But he loses all of this money. And here's the reality, though. As much money as that is, losing your soul so much more. That amount of money is nothing compared to losing your soul. Notice again, Jesus says, is anything worth more than your soul? It's easy to say no to that question. Of course not. Nothing is worth more than my soul. Are you living with that being true? Are you answering that question in your life? Are you living in a way that shows that nothing is more important than your soul? Because here's the thing, is the prince of this dark world, the prince of this world, Satan, he is on this all-out attack for our souls. As we read through Scripture, we get to page 4 in the Bible where we find Satan lying to Adam and Eve, tempting them to eat the fruit in the Garden of Eden. Next chapter, we find Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel. And Cain is, is upset with, with, with his brother, and he's upset with God. And, and God says this to him. He says, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, to master you. Like There's this all-out attack in our souls. We, we go to the New Testament. One of Jesus' own followers, Judas. It says of Judas that Satan enters into his soul because there was this, this temptation that Judas is completely continuing to have, and Judas finally gives in. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, it says Satan filled their hearts and they lie to the Holy Spirit and the way the kid's song says, and they all fell dead, right? Pretty gruesome kid's song. It's in the scriptures. Because here's the reality, is there is an attack on your soul. Our world has this counter formation 
And if you look at Mark chapter 4, or you look in, in, the, in I think it, I can't remember Mark 4, but the temptation of Jesus. If you look at the temptation of Jesus, you guys realize like these are the temptations that, Jesus, that Satan offers Jesus? He offers him the world. He offers him power. He offers him prestige. He offers him position, influence. All Jesus has to do is bow down to Satan, and it's all his. Like This is what Satan is offering Jesus in our world. It's all about counterformation. It's trying to get us to sell our soul. It's trying to get us to give ourselves to him. The world wants us to do the opposite of what Jesus says, to sell our soul. And here's the reality. It's not always bad, terrible things, right? Like as we think about Judas, maybe the, the number one person in the scripture who sells their soul for Jesus or sells Jesus out for, and sells his soul, he sells his soul for 20 pieces of silver. In today's economy, that's about, or about 10 to 15,000 euro. I gotta admit, I've sold Jesus out for less than that. I'm sure you have too. I've sold my relationship out for Jesus for a little bit of momentary pleasure. I've sold my relationship out for Jesus to, to be able to say something to someone that I didn't really want, that I knew Jesus didn't want me to say, but I did it anyway. I've sold myself out for less. And so what are some ways, have, you, have we done this? There's this temptation to sell our soul. And here's the reality. Is since nothing is more important than your soul, nothing should be off limits to Jesus. Since nothing is more important than your soul, nothing should be off limits to Jesus. And that thing that just popped into your mind when we mentioned something being off limits, you going to keep holding on to that? Are you going to let it go? Is that thing truly worth the cost of your soul? Like, what are we chasing? What are we chasing after? Like, what do we desire more? What are you trying to gain? Are you trying to gain? Like, are you selling your soul for, you know, being a great spouse? That's a, a worthy ambition. Having a great spouse is awesome. I have one. But when that's our only desire, the only thing that we desire to do, we sell ourselves or sell our soul to that. And it leaves us empty. Is it worth it? Being a great parent is a great thing to do. But if that becomes your only thing, if that becomes your God, the thing that, you, that defines who you are, we're selling our soul to that. Being really good at your job is a great thing. But is it the thing that, that defines you? Is it the most significant thing in your life? Is it the thing that makes you you? And Jesus is saying nothing is worth more than your soul. It's not worth it. Continues on in verse 38. Jesus says, it says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in glory of, the, his, of his Father and with the holy angels. And so here's the paradox of the scriptures. The paradox is salvation cost us nothing, yet it cost us giving up everything. It's the paradox of the scriptures. It cost us nothing, but we give up everything for it. We give up everything to follow after him. 
And Jesus says, if you are ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of you. The Son of Man will be ashamed. And so what are some of the ways that, that maybe we're ashamed of Jesus? What are some of the ways that, that we are, we're ashamed of him? It's, we don't follow this. We say, okay, Jesus, you can have this part of my life, but you can't have this part. That's being ashamed of him. It's saying, Jesus, I trust you enough with my salvation, but I don't trust you with my finances. And that's being ashamed of him. It's saying, God, I trust that you know what's best for me, that you want what's best for me, except when it comes to my spouse or my partner, that's up to me, and I'm not going to trust you there. And that's being ashamed of him. And so Jesus is saying, are you ashamed? Because the way that we show that we're ashamed of him is we don't pick up our cross. We don't follow after him. Here's the reality. Is there is no believing without following. We can say we believe, we truly believe in Jesus. But the proof is in our following. Are we actually following him? Jesus is saying, if you are going to believe in me, then we have to follow after him. There's no believing without following. And Jesus wraps up our time together. In verse 1, Jesus went on to say this. He says, I tell you the truth. Some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Most scholars believe that this is the most difficult verse to comprehend and understand in the entire Gospels. So we're going we're gonna to hit it in about 45 seconds, right? Simple. But like, as we, not really, not at all. But as we look at this passage, like, it's, there's a lot of parts to it. But what I want us to see is, is that word power. When it returns, when it comes in great power. That word power is the exact same word that Jesus uses in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon the people in great power. And so what if, this is what Jesus is talking about here, is, is this great power is like we get to be part of the kingdom. We get to be part of this kingdom of God. We get to be a part of this. And so when, the, when this great power comes upon you, and what we begin to see is, we see this being, this is Jesus' church, with a bunch of people who are walking around carrying their cross, following after him. And as we walk through all of these things, pick up your cross, follow me, give up your own life. It reminds me of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And I love what the old evangelist D.L. Moody says about this. He says, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. And Pastor Tim Keller, he writes about this. He says, he says see, the, the old sacrifices were no problem. You killed it, and that was it. They burned, and it was over. A living sacrifice, catch this, a living sacrifice means every day, every hour, every moment. Right now, you have to deliberately, conscientiously, continually offer yourself to him. It's constant. It's never over. It's intense. You are not living the Christian life unless you put the death, the idea that you have the right to live your life as you choose. So it's every day, 
every hour, every minute to follow Jesus. It's a daily decision. To follow Jesus, it's a daily decision. Because when we get up in the morning, we say, okay, Jesus, not my will be done, but your will. When we get up in the morning, we say, Jesus, I am going to decide to pick up my cross today, and I'm going to follow you. And here's the reality. The cross can get heavy. We just continue to pick it up and continue to follow after Jesus. We make this a daily decision that every single day I am going to follow at the feet of Him. Because the thing is, there's going to be these temptations that continue to pop up of, of wanting to grab our own lives, to want to live to our, for ourselves. These temptations are going to continue to come. And so we make the decision day in, day out, to say, say no to ourselves, and we say yes to Jesus. And so what we're going to do so we get ready to wrap this up. Leading into this conversation was Jesus' moment with the disciples. Jesus has this moment that Evan talked about last week at Caesarea Philippi, and he asked some questions. Jesus asked some questions of, of the disciples. And here's what we want to do. I want us together to make the confession that Peter made. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you say that I am your follower, that I am going to believe you, I am going to live for you, today is the day. What I want us to do is I want us to make this decision to pick up our cross and to follow him. Because Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? And the most significant question that any of us have is to answer that question. And what Peter says is he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so here's what I want to do. I want us to confess this together. If you're making a decision to every single day as a follower of Jesus to pick up your cross and follow him, this is what we do. Because if Jesus is Messiah, if Jesus is King, and Jesus is Lord, it's the only possible way that can we, we can respond to him. So I'll read Jesus' command or his question, and then if, you wanna, if you're willing to pick up your cross and follow him, to live the way that Jesus wants you to live, if you're willing to walk away from your own, your own life and find life in him, I want us to say this together. So Jesus says, who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Let's pray. Father, Jesus, that's who you are. That's who we believe you to be. The Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, it's in that reality.